The first reading this morning, we have three readings. I'll just get that. The first reading this morning is from Ephesians chapter 1, which is on page 1173. That's Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace which he freely has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfilment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. The second reading this morning is from Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 9, that's on page 1182. That's Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 9. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up in you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you, the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, We have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. And giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. 
For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The final reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 6 on page 971. It's Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labour or spin, yet I tell you that even Solomon in all his splendour was dressed like one of these. Sorry, I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendour was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Well, thanks, Laura, and good morning again, uh, everyone. Uh, we're doing a series at the moment that's a little different to our standard fare of working through books of the Bible, like we did through uh, Revelation and Proverbs earlier in the year. And in recent weeks, we've been doing what we call a doctrine series, where we look at some uh, bigger theological issues and draw some conclusions and some thoughts and application from across the Bible. So uh, I've been away for a couple of weeks, like many of you. Cam, two weeks ago, uh, did a very helpful sermon uh, helping us to think through what it looks like to work in this world and our priorities around that and how we do that to honour God. Uh, Philip, who's service leading today, did a, a cracker last week on how we relate to God through Scripture. And uh, I took the time to catch up this week, and if you've missed those, I think it's uh, well worth your time uh, to catch up on both of those sermons. This morning, I'm looking at the issue of guidance which is another way of saying, how do we make decisions as Christians or how do we think about God's will for our lives? Because we certainly have many decisions to make in life. What career will I pursue? Will I change the company that I work for? What house to buy? Should I mortgage up and renovate? Decisions on schooling if you have kids. What friendships to invest in? Should I marry this person? I uh, spent 10 years in youth and young adult ministry and certainly fielded that one plenty of times. Then there's a whole other level of thinking about God's will in the situations we can't control. When we're faced with things in life and you think, I wish this couldn't happen, I can't control it. The really kind of tough stuff in life, uh, whether you've got issues of unemployment or underemployment, uh, you've had difficulties with pregnancy, 
what it's like if you really want to get married but haven't been able to find the right person, relational breakdowns. There's a lot of difficult stuff that we have to think through. And as Christians, we're trying to think through how does this marry up with the God that I know. And digging to a deeper level again, underneath all of our decision-making, many of us have feelings of deep regret about bad decisions in our past and a lot of what drives the anxiety around our decision-making in the future is worrying about getting it wrong. How do we think through that kind of stuff as Christians? Quite quickly, you can see we're zooming in uh, on a topic that cuts to the very core of who we are and how we do life. And for the Christian, it poses many questions about the nature of God, how he operates, what he's determined for us, what's his will and how we interact with that. So today I want to put together a biblical framework for us to help. Sound doctrine on this, I think, can and indeed should make us feel less anxious about our decision-making. I think we can actually find a greater degree of freedom in life. But having said that, I realise this is not an easy task for many of us. So as I begin, let me paint, uh, I guess, the extremes uh, ends of how Christians have thought about this, uh, the two what I think are unhelpful and unbiblical extremes Christians sometimes get themselves trapped in when it comes to the issue of guidance and God's will. On one extreme, some Christians make decision after decision without much regard for God, without reflecting on Scripture, without prayer, without the insights of godly brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's only when the wheels fall off in life, when life is not satisfying, when things go wrong, then God is called upon, often blamed for not delivering on promises he never made in the first place. Then people pray, asking God to fix the situation, I, my observation is options are often presented to God on how you might like the situation fixed. And my experience is too that God often doesn't take kindly to our demands being presented with option A or B of uh, acceptable answers to us on how a situation might be fixed. So often no answer is given to those prayers and without adequate Christian maturity and without a solid framework people plunge into further doubt, fear and anxiety. And it can kind of be a vortex that you get stuck in. With the wrong framework, you ask the wrong questions to which there are no good answers to which you feel cut adrift in the world. On the other extreme, some have taken the language of God's will, his calling on our lives, combined it with some observations about God guiding his church in scripture and surmised that there is a detailed and discernible plan God has for each of our lives and the job is for us is not to get it wrong we need to hit the bullseye as it's referred to I was listening to Jeff Lynn who did a broader series on guidance at Trinity Church Unley and I'm stealing a few of his best thoughts uh, this morning but Jeff explains this bullseye approach well when it comes to career there must be a clear and discernible call for me to, for example, to be a teacher. In relationships, under the bullseye approach, we're either called to be single or to have one person in the world that we should marry. And the Christian life is, becomes quite a struggle kind of not to get it wrong. We don't want to miss the mark. We need to hit the bullseye. 
And I agree with Jeff, and I think it's wrong because it goes beyond, I think, where Scripture goes, but also practically it's not a great way to live. It puts you under immense pressure to make the right decisions. Often if something goes wrong in life, you presume you've made the wrong choice, so it heaps a heavy burden on you. I think there's a whole section of the Christian world, while not using the term bullseye approach, operate that way and import a non-biblical meaning into God's will and the language of calling. And logically, I don't think it works well either. And to pick one of the many logical flaws, uh, one of our 9am congregation, uh, for example, came to me last year after a job interview at a Christian school where they were asked, why do you think God has called you to this role? Now, they interviewed four people for that job. Only one person got it. What does that say about God's guidance with three people just plainly mistaken? Uh, one person was right and the interview panel were the you know, arbiters of God's will on that. What if, it, what if the appointment didn't go well and the person leaves in six months? What does that say about guidance? Now, I could go on and probably would enjoy shooting down the scriptural and logical flaws of the bullseye approach. But rather this morning, I want to lay before you what I think scripture does say on the issue of guidance and God's will. I want to examine the scripture carefully and build a more helpful framework for us making decisions in life that bring glory to God and blessing to us. If you've been around any length of time, you'll know I think everyone should always have the Bible open in front of them for every sermon because God's authority comes from scripture, not from me. But I also want to say topical sermons intrinsically are more dangerous as we rip through uh, a number of verses of the Bible without much context. So please open your Bibles if they're closed uh, to our first reading on Ephesians 1, which you'll find on page 1173. Now we won't go through each passage in depth and we've already read them. But the first quite mind-blowing truth, I think, about choice from this passage for every Christian is, verse 4, Ephesians 1, that he, being God, chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Now, if you're here checking out who Jesus is today, I take it from Scripture, from Jesus' words and many other parts of the New Testament, that if you're investigating who Jesus is, you have a very real decision in front of you on whether to follow Jesus or not. And that's why we run our Looking Into Life series. We've got one starting in November. That would be a great choice of yours to come along and uh, help, uh, let us help you think through who Jesus is, what his claims are, so that you can make an informed choice on that. Alternatively, reading uh, through the Bible with a Christian is also another great step you might like to take. If that's you, great decision. Tick the box on the response card. I'd like to find out more about Jesus or come and chat afterwards and we'll sort that out. However, as a Christian standing on the other side of that decision, knowing that this is actually all true about who Jesus is, you look back and this truth in the Bible applies to us that we're told that before this world was created, God not only knew you, but effectively took out a pen and wrote your name in a book of those that he would save through Jesus, dealing with your sin on the cross as Jesus died for us, making you a child of God. 
in accordance, verse 5, with his pleasure and will. Mind-blowingly good news, but also quite a shot across the bow when it comes to thinking of what we often term uh, our so-called free will. (laughs) When the Bible uses the term God's will, it tends to use it in two ways, referring either to God's sovereign will or his moral will. I'll explain the two. I've just come up with terms to describe what we observe in Scripture. This in Ephesians is an example of what you might call God's sovereign will, what God declares must happen. When God sovereignly, what God sovereignly plans to do, he does. There's no doubt about the outcome. And we've seen some other examples of God's sovereign will in action as we've looked at Revelation in recently uh, as a church. As Jesus gives John this vision of God's throne room in heaven, he says to John, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And we see through John that it is God's sovereign will that every knee will bow before God and before the Lamb, Jesus, slain for us. Some willingly as sons and daughters of God with great joy and some after a lifetime of rebellion against God realising that they got it wrong and the time of God's gracious offer of forgiveness is now past. But either way, every knee will bow. That is God's sovereign will. There is no doubt about that outcome. The other way God's will is referred to is often termed God's moral will. It's just a name uh, given to God's will on how we should live. So, for example, um, and this verse is up on the screen. So we lost our proclaim operator this morning. Jenny very kindly jumped on for the first time. You can just leave that slide up for the whole sermon because I reckon there'll be some questions and you want that SMS number to fire in your questions. I'll answer them at 10.30. They'll go up on the website tomorrow. So... God's moral will, as it's often referred to in the Bible. Uh, Here's an example from 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 and 5. I'll just read it to you. It's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. There's an example of God letting us know his moral will for our lives on how we should live. They, I think, by and large, are the two ways God's will is used in the Bible. And often God's calling is used in very similar ways as well. We often talk about calling uh, in a way that the Bible doesn't. When the Bible uses it, in areas like Romans 1, we're called to be God's holy people, we're called to belong to Jesus. Uh, It doesn't refer to calling in the fine details uh, of life. So understanding the distinction now and just that broad framework of how God's sovereign will is used in the Bible and his moral will and how the Bible uses the term calling on us as God's people and that that's where the Bible stops. Taking God's idea of calling to the extreme of what I'd defined before as the bullseye approach, saying that I'm called to be a teacher, I'm called to marry this person, I think is taking a step beyond where scripture goes. And promoting the idea that there is a detailed and discernible plan, please note the and there, God does care about the details, and we'll come back to that later, but I think 
putting that pressure on us that there is a detailed and discernible plan on every aspect of our lives, I think is unbiblical and unhelpful and heaps a burden upon us that we're not designed to bear. I realise that's not uncontroversial, that's why the SMS line is up on the screen so you can challenge me on it. For now, however, let's turn to Colossians, our second reading for today, which is on page 1182. As the Apostle Paul writes to the Colossian church, he's rejoicing in the faith they have in Jesus, their love for one another, God's people, that springs from the hope that they have in heaven. They know and understand God's sovereign will for this world, and they're seeking to have their whole life shaped by it. Then verse 9, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continue to ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. So now you're thinking, ah, which, uh, which definition of God's will is being used here in the Bible? And I'm thinking as I read it that it's both. Because this passage is sandwiched between God's great sovereign plans for the good news of Jesus to bear fruit throughout the world. That was the opening verses. And as the passage continues, God's sovereign will is again in the context in which God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness through Jesus, redeeming us, providing forgiveness of sins. Yet the purpose of being filled with the knowledge of God's will is, verse 10, so that... You may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. Our goal is to please God in every way, bear fruit in every good work. It's a, you know couldn't be more all-inclusive, I don't think, there, and it acknowledges that we need God's strength to endure as we do this through life's challenges and to be patient. There is no specific plan revealed here for us, but there is an all-encompassing one, that every decision, every arena in life we operate in, we are to look to please God in every way. You might say, well, that's all well and good, but I have very real concerns about decision-making this week on housing or schooling, our finance, my career, that create a very real worry and anxiety in me, which is why I put our third reading in today, because Jesus' take on this is quite interesting. During his Sermon on the Mount, and you can turn to it if you like, on page 971 of your Blue Bibles, it's a famous, it's kind of the go-to passage on worry, (laughs) Uh, stating that because we observe God's care and the provision for the birds of the air and the flowers of the field that came across so well in our kids' talk this morning and that we are much more important to God, Jesus says, so do not worry, saying what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear, for the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Jesus acknowledges there that our days are not easy, but he reassures us that God knows what we need. We're not to chase after those things like those who don't know Jesus. Instead, we are to seek first 
the kingdom of God and the righteousness God provides for us in Christ and makes clear we are to pursue it as people free. Well, sorry, Jesus makes clear that we are free to pursue it without the worry of sin's penalty in our lives. That's kind of how the the gospel comes to bear in relation to this. Now, context makes this point that Jesus is making about not worrying even more dramatic as it comes straight out of Jesus' prior point on not storing up treasure on earth. Rather, store it up in heaven. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money, Jesus says. And then he flows straight into this passage, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. Now, none of this answers the specific questions on guidance that we have. But I do think it allows us to put together a great gospel-driven framework which shapes our decision-making and our prayers. So first things first, we have to be clear on the big picture of where this world is going, what God's plans are, his sovereign will revealed to us. If we were in a military briefing and we're sitting there, we're going to, you know, about to start a war, taking back our homeland, and we're about to enter in and take it by force, the commander would start with the big picture, the big objectives first, the overall objective of the mission on a war that might be very long. The big picture for every Christian is that God's sovereign will has been declared, and unlike war, the outcome is not in doubt. God has shown us, he's revealed to us, what must take place. Every knee will bow before God and his throne and in front of the Lamb, our King Jesus. Our whole lives are to be framed in order of that big purpose of God's sovereign will that he has revealed to us. You would have heard me reflect a concern a few times this week because it has been something on my mind Uh, that I have for our church in general in the world, particularly the church in the West, and I don't think any church uh, is immune from it, that some don't have this first and essential building block in place. Some do not seek first his kingdom, but just want to be popped in from time to time and be reminded that we're saved by grace, and then head back to pursuing the very best they can get out from this world without sacrifice without seeking to live all of life for God's glory, without heeding the one another commands that we're given in the Bible that can only be obeyed within the context of a believing community, without growing to maturity in word and prayer, without using our gifts to serve and without passionately pursuing our given by Jesus mission to go and make disciples together. If that's you the Christian life will not work. You will not be able to escape worry. You won't have the right foundation. Hence, you'll ask the wrong questions, get the wrong answers, and it simply will not work. So as Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Life will not be absent of struggle, but you'll be struggling for the right cause under the direction of our Lord and Saviour Jesus as God's sovereign plans for this world unfold with a very sure and a very certain reward. 
Secondly, God's moral will for our lives gives us boundaries and laws to obey as we make our way through life. So switching metaphors, say our big picture goal is to get from East to West Terrace in the city. Being Adelaide, it's a grid. There's multiple routes that you could take, all roughly equidistant. You can walk, you can ride a bike, you can catch a bus, you can drive. You have freedom within to achieve that objective, to choose any of the above. But we all know that there's road traffic laws that put boundaries on our behaviour as we do so. You have to stop at traffic lights, you have to not drive in the bus lane, you can't run over pedestrians for dawdling and looking at their phones. (laughs) So for Christians, the big picture in place, seek first his kingdom. Within that, I think we have a lot of freedom in our decision-making. Yet God's moral will for our lives sets boundaries on those decisions. Then with that comes wisdom. If you want to get from East to West Terrace in Adelaide, wisdom will tell you that you shouldn't take North Terrace unless you have a lot of time on your hands. (laughs) There's a million sets of traffic lights, students wandering, you know, blinking at the daylight, glued to their phones, trams going everywhere. Not a wise choice if you want to get from East to West Terrace quickly. I remind all our brides that when we get married at uh, Trinity City. (laughs) Not all listen. (laughs) So that's where wisdom, we have to ex- within the freedom we have to make decisions, we have that extra layer of seeking God's wisdom as we do so. And the final piece of the framework, I think, for today comes down to the motives of our hearts as we make those decisions. In an effort to be more wise, I've spent a lot of time in Proverbs this year, and I've encouraged many of you to get into it as we did our Proverbs series earlier in the year. And it has helped helped save me uh, from myself many times over. But another thing that it has done has exposed my heart motivations. So here's the proverb for the day, uh, chapter 16, verse 2. All a person's ways seem pure to them, but the motives are weighed by the Lord. To me, that speaks of my ability to be able to justify nearly any decision I make to others, yet it's a reminder for me to do a deep examination of my heart because God is not fooled. So with that framework in place, Let's apply this framework now to decision-making. Let's run an example uh, of a teacher with two job offers. One at a well-respected Christian school, one in the public system. And to make it interesting, let's say there's a 10 grand pay differential between the two. First question, question, how can I be on about the gospel in all of life? I think you can run the argument both ways. We want Christians in both arenas. I think we have freedom there to make the choice. Next question, am I going to be in a position where I'm called upon to break any of God's moral will for my life? Hopefully not, uh, but saying that, I'm sure someone will come up to me after the sermon with a hypothetical. Uh, But uh, I think this question is probably much more evident in many other professions, in uh, corporations and uh, where business ethics uh, come into play quite a lot, but anyway, let's assume not, a teacher will correct me after the service, I'm sure, Uh, but we've sort of thought, okay, can I pursue bringing glory to God in all of life in both jobs? Yes. Am I asked to be breaking God's moral will and taking either? Let's hope not. Then there comes the wisdom call. Depending on how you're wired, your personality, your gifts, 
I think some Christian teachers could make their best contribution in an environment where they have more freedom to shape kids within the Christian system. Others might be brilliantly wired to bring glory to and honour to God within the tighter constraints of the public system. I think there's a wisdom call there. Through prayer, an ongoing pattern of delving into God's word, plus seeking wise counsel from brothers and sisters in Christ, other teachers perhaps, we have no shortage here. <laughs> there also might be very different expectations on your time with both schools. Teachers, to me, by my observation, seem to have very great demands on their time, uh, particularly during term time. It's a demanding job. One school might have very different calls on your time, and having thought through how you might serve God at work, I think there's another wisdom call. One job might have a clear advantage on your ability to serve God outside of work, in your family, here at church. Then we throw in the 10K pay difference. I haven't told you which way that goes. But I, have to th I think we have to realise the power that money holds over us to corrupt our decision-making process. I think that's why it's singled out by Jesus so often. And he's so blunt, you cannot serve both God and money. Now, there's nothing wrong with earning more money, but we have to be aware of its corrupting effect on our decision-making process. Whilst we might be able to justify our decisions to others, that's where we need the reminder that God weighs and knows the motivations of our heart. Now, I would enjoy running scenarios all day, but my time is almost done. So do it with each other. Do it after church. Do it in the car with your brothers and sisters in Christ in community group or through the week. Bear in mind this framework we've put in place. Big picture goal to align our lives with God's sovereign plans that every knee will bow before him, which puts on all of us the requirement to have a gospel-focused underpinning to everything that we do. God's moral will puts a framework around that, lines that cannot be crossed. Within those, however, I think we have freedom. But we want to use that freedom to seek wisdom to guide us, which again I don't think is just having the perfect proverb or Bible verse for the moment. But I think that wisdom is given through the patient, ongoing, week-in, week-out study of God's Word, encountering God through the Scriptures in prayer, through the insights of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And in the context of those relationships, I'd be very encouraged, I would like to encourage you to find at least one brother or sister in Christ that you respect to really delve into the motivations of the heart. Because we should, whilst I don't think we need to share all this with everyone, we should be comfortable at least with someone to sort of say, yeah, there's a 10 can pay difference here. Here's how I think about money. I realise it has a powerful effect. Here's what we give. Here's what we do. Like, you should be comfortable to explain the deep motivations and kind of be aware that it's pretty impossible to make a, any decision without mixed motives in life, but just to be honest about them. I say sorry to God for my mixed motives all the time because I realise that as much as, you, you know, money, security, ego, all these things play an effect on our decision-making. I figure I just want to own it, talk to someone about it, say, God, I'm sorry for my mixed motives. Please help me to honour you and not let those mixed motives guide me to make ungodly decisions. In the context of God's sovereign plans for our world, 
the fact that God has sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. As we look back, I think we can be so thankful to Jesus for taking the penalty of our sins, for taking the penalty of those badly motivated decisions, the selfish, the sinful. As we look to our brothers and sisters in Christ, this grace God has shown us, we too are called to show to each other when someone who has hurt us comes back to us in repentance over bad decisions made. Jesus frees us to live by and under this grace. And as we look forward and make decisions before us, we want to encourage each other to seek to glorify God in every way, in every arena of life. Now, whilst it's not been the main point of this sermon, I want to say as we suffer now with life's trials, grief, unemployment, difficulties and relationships, I don't think we need to go down the rabbit hole of trying to understand God's details, His will in any and every situation. But we can ask Him to use this suffering to draw us closer to Him to help us better care for those who suffer as well. And knowing God's sovereign will for our world, I think as Christians we can rejoice that Jesus has secured for us a place, everyone who calls him Lord and Saviour, in heaven's eternal celebration, in, in heaven's eternal praise. Knowing that is the end of all things, how much should that reduce our anxiety about our decisions today? If that in the end is where it all ends despite what message we might make of things. That's a great comfort and a great kind of framework to think about how we make decisions today. We can rejoice that Jesus has secured a place for everyone who calls him Lord and Saviour in this eternal praise and celebration, which has a very real and lasting effect on reducing our anxiety and our worry about the decisions that lay before us. Let's pray. <laughs> Dear Heavenly Father, we um, just acknowledge that as we uh, touch on this issue of guidance, uh, that for so many of us in the room here today, it will uh, bring back uh, past regrets. It will bring to the fore worries about decisions we have uh, to make in the coming week, in the months ahead. Uh, please use... Your word, please use what we have uh, discerned from it today to build a framework for making these decisions that frees us to really live, uh, that uh, frees us from the burden of feeling like we have to get everything right. Please help us most of all just to have our hearts right before you and in our uncertainty and having to make decisions sometimes and the way forward isn't clear Please help our hearts to be cleared before you as they are weighed by you. Please find us as people longing to bring glory to you in every aspect of life. We um, pray here that while the way forward uh, sometimes looks uncertain, we thank you as we look back. We can see your will unfolding in our life uh, that often includes many trials and suffering and struggle. We pray that uh, the trials and suffering and struggle that is before us would draw us closer to you, to our brothers and sisters in Christ and make us appreciate the grace that you have shown us and the victory and the, uh, the security we have in eternity with you all the more. And we ask these things for your glory and for our blessing. In Jesus' precious name, amen.